This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for joining us, and welcome. I just spoke with Larry Principe about his new book, The Secrets of Alchemy. This is a book that was just published with the University of Chicago Press in 2013, and it's written to appeal to and to engage, to substantively engage, a very wide readership ranging from interested readers who may not have any background at all in the history of science or the history of alchemy to professionals in the field who might want to use this either to do their to help them in doing their own work and or to teach. And I should say this is a very assignable book, and I certainly will be using this in uh, university syllabi for undergraduates and graduate students for many years to come. The conversation that we had ranged from the really interesting way that the story of alchemy develops and is structured in the book from its earliest period in the Greco-Egyptian context from the 3rd to the 9th century, all the way through our contemporary context right now, which sees the interpretation, reevaluation, and in some cases, misunderstanding of alchemy and its history. It's also a book that presents a really fascinating historiographical intervention into questions of what it can mean, what it should mean, um, and what it has meant for Principe to investigate the history of alchemy. And one of the things that you'll hear um, in the ensuing conversation, and that comes up at several points in the book, is a methodology that seeks to understand and to contextualize and to really get into the details of the texts and practices of alchemists by reproducing some of their practices and trying to follow some of the recipes in a modern laboratory right now. And there are several examples of Principe actually um, successfully reproducing what seem like otherwise impossible or outlandish kinds of claims and practices in especially early modern, um, but also earlier alchemical texts in his laboratory today, and uh, talking about that and presenting that for us and imaging that in the book. It's really, really interesting um, for that reason on many, many levels. There's some fascinating stories in the book of particular texts and people and ideas that are going to be satisfying, again, to readers who are looking to this book to be part of the history of chemistry or the history of science, but also part of the history of what it has looked like to tell a story about practices and ideas through time with a particular sensitivity to try to understand each period in the eyes and on the terms of the people who lived there. It's a really wonderfully engaging book. It was great to talk with Larry about it, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Lawrence Principe about his new book, The Secrets of Alchemy. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Larry, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the history of science and to the history of alchemy in particular? Well, um, my interest in alchemy is actually preceded and accompanied by an interest in chemistry more generally. I, I did my first degrees in chemistry uh, and then turned to the history of science uh, more seriously. Uh, I suppose in terms of alchemy, I was interested in trying to figure out what it was alchemists were actually doing. What was the chemistry of the past like? How are they different? How are they the same from us? Uh, there was always, when, when, you know, some years ago when I got started in this back in the 1980s, uh, there was a lot of rather confident statements made about what alchemy was really all about. And I was a bit dubious about many of these answers. And so I thought, well, it's about time to figure out what were they really doing? And that's what I've been working on ever since. So the book actually explores many of these central questions that you just mentioned. What is alchemy? Who were the alchemists and what did they believe and what did they do? What were their goals? What did they accomplish? And also, how did they envision their world and their work? And how were they seen by contemporaries? And you, you lay out these questions very early in the book. Can you situate this book then within the larger trajectory of your work? How does this fit within the larger span of the research that you've been doing? Well, in a sense, it's a summary of the work I've been doing for the last uh, 25, 30 years. Uh, in fact, I started out looking at some 16th and 17th century alchemists and doing the more traditional, scholarly, uh, heavily footnoted uh, kind of work, uh, which I published. I published a book on Robert Boyle, for example, who was very famous for his, let's say, the gas law that every uh, introductory chemistry student learns, and also he was given the title of father of chemistry. Well, one of the things that I tried to show was that he was not only heavily indebted to his alchemical predecessors, but in fact was involved in some of the very same uh, operations, the very same uh, goals that they were, like looking for the philosopher's stone and trying to achieve metallic transmutation. And um, over the past years, I've done quite a number of, of these sort of deep, intense uh, monographic studies. Well, I thought now it was time for me to bring all of this information, not just what I've done, but all of my colleagues in alchemical studies, to bring our work to a broader audience, because there really was a dearth of work uh, speaking to a general audience about alchemy. My, my personal experience has been that when I give public lectures, I find a substantial interest on the part of the public to know something about alchemy, to know about the way people in the past viewed their world or worked with it in a very physical kind of way. Uh, so I thought, well, there seems to be an audience for this out there. Um, maybe it's time for me to, to take a break from writing uh, scholarly monographs and write instead a general, a more general reader book. So one of the interesting things I discovered in the course of doing this was that one, I had to retool a little bit to figure out how to, how to write in a more engaging fashion. Uh, but also I discovered how inaccessible much scholarly work on the topic actually is. Um, and that's for two reasons. One, much of it is published in slightly difficult to obtain places, uh, collected volumes and scholarly journals. But the vast majority of it is not in English. 
Mm-hmm. So there, there was a little bit of a problem there again, getting things out to the, the public. And I thought, well, this is this is something that I can do. Um, it would be useful for me to sort of summarize what's happened in this what I like to call alchemical revolution that we're living in, uh, where our knowledge of alchemy is just increasing by leaps and bounds. So, in a sense, this was a well a summary. Um, I'm going to to. Uh, quote from a very distinguished uh, historian of chemistry from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s by the name of um, uh, uh, um, Frank Sherwood Taylor. And uh, he wrote a book on alchemy around 1950, and he called his book an interim report. (laughs) And so I think that this work of mine is... uh, it's an updated interim report, but we still have a lot more to learn. Now, you just mentioned that learning how or figuring out how to pitch this particular material for a wider audience involved a little bit of retooling on your part. And this is certainly something that I think um, any of us who have tried to translate the kind of research that we're publishing and doing in the history of science. For me, it's also the history of China. So you have this kind of double um, translation that needs to happen find the same thing. Can you talk maybe, um, and in part with, with that goal in mind to, um, to talk about these issues, because I think many of us, um, often struggle with this and perhaps it would be helpful for people to hear how you, um, found success in doing this. Can you talk a little bit about the specifics of some of that retooling? What did you find particularly helpful in, um, in translating the research that you had been doing and that many of our colleagues have been doing for this wider audience? Well, one thing that was a huge help was to talk to people outside of the field. Um, some of them professorial colleagues of mine, but also people in the general public uh, to find out what they were interested in and what kind of writing, what kind of topics really excited them. Also, how much of an attention span one who's not a devotee of the alchemical arts can actually give to a particular kind of argument. How deep should one go? Uh, it took a bit of experimentation. I must say that the first uh, drafts of the book were not enormously successful, and it took a lot of rewriting to to present something in a more readable format. Um, but I think having other people read the work was a big help. And is there any particular writer who also is engaged in presenting research in a form that um, is um, enjoyable and accessible to a wider audience that you found to be a model or that you particularly like reading? Um, you know, I, I, it's kind of embarrassing for me to say, well, no, actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't read that much. I, it's not because there aren't people out there who would have been models for me. Um, but I was trying to create actually something of a slightly different style. Um, and that is a book that would grow with the reader. And by that, I mean that the, the main text of the book, the chapters themselves, uh, should be accessible to pretty much any interested, uh, educated reader. Um, but I also created, I think, something like a third of the book is EndNote and Bibliography. Right. And the those sort of scholarly intricacies that I just could not possibly do without um, got put as EndNotes. So that would mean that, let's say, 
uh, a graduate student in the history of science or a, a person who is really intent on learning more than they can learn out of the text of the book would be able to access the endnotes and have uh, material there at a higher level that would reference other material and so forth. Yes, so I think the book works at, I think the book works at these two levels, and that's what I was trying to, to, to work out for myself. And you just mentioned graduate students, and one of the things that you mention in the book, and I think in the acknowledgement section, is a seminar that you gave at Johns Hopkins University in the spring of 2012 called Wretched Subjects. Can you speak yes. a little bit to that seminar and how that's engaged with the work that you're doing in the book? Absolutely. Well, perhaps first I should explain why it has the unusual title of Wretched Subjects. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a play on a comment, a dismissive comment, that was made uh, in the 1950s by George Sarton, who was the founder, actually, of the History of Science Society and its journal ISIS. Uh, he was referring to a book that had been published on, I believe it was on Babylonian astrology and divination, and he referred to it as a wretched subject, uh, dismissing it as you know not really being part of the history of science or not worthy of being part of the history of science. Well, he, he got taken to task by an, an, another great scholar, Otto Neugebauer, who responded in an article of defending the study of wretched subjects. So this uh, course that I gave, this graduate seminar, uh, focused on really three of the wretched subjects. It is alchemy, astrology, and magic. Um, uh, there was a, a, a fortuitous uh, conjunction of students here uh, at Hopkins uh, who were interested, actually, in one or more of those subjects. And so it was an opportunity to get together and talk about them, talk about uh, what their content was historically, why they've been rejected uh, in the intermediate time, and now the revival of scholarly interest in them. And we we had a number of uh, visiting scholars come in to give talks on their specialty, on alchemy, on astrology, on the history of the so-called occult sciences. Um, and we did some practical work, too. We learned how to use an astrolabe and cast a horoscope in the correct early modern fashion and so forth. And speaking of practical work, we'll come to this later on, but there was um, quite a bit of practical work uh, that also went into the research for this book, and it's fascinating, yes. and um, we'll definitely talk about that in due course and, and oh. fairly soon. <laughs> So the structure of the book itself is very striking and was, a, a, I'm sure, an explicit decision on your part. It follows a periodization of Western alchemy in world history, and that involves actually at least two kinds of decisions. To focus, um, and you describe your rationale for this in the book, to focus on Western alchemy, so to not include um, the, the kinds of topics that have been translated in terms of the language of alchemy uh, by some scholars that uh, have been uh, practiced in Chinese history, for example, but also um, to to segment the story into roughly geographic terms uh, that are encapsulated in each one of these periods. So could you say a little bit about these decisions um, that you made in terms of structuring the book and the story that you're telling? Yeah, well, sometimes when I was writing the book, I, I, I felt like I was shuffling a deck of cards trying to figure out exactly how to put everything together. The, the chapters moved around quite a bit. 
Um, what I decided in the end to do was to was to write the first three chapters about uh, cultural and linguistic centers that, in their day, were the at the apex of alchemical work. Because alchemy sort of took a little trip around the Mediterranean, if you will, um, from its origins in Hellenistic Egypt, uh, in the Greek language, uh, spread through the Islamic world in the Arabic language, in the second part, uh, and then entered Europe as an Arabic kind of knowledge uh, and was translated then and pursued in Latin. So those three traditions, Greek, Arabic, and medieval Latin, are the first part. Um, alchemy's real blossoming occurred in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe. And that is, of course, not only my own area of expertise, but that's also the subject about which we know the most. And so much of the second half of the book is focused on that time period. Now, of course, this left, this left me with a couple of problems that I was trying to deal with. This was perhaps the most difficult problem with writing the book uh, altogether. And that is, one, there's a huge amount of misinformation out there about what alchemy really was. And there's no way that I could possibly have written uh, a book for the general reader without addressing these things. I have to say, you know, okay, here's where this idea came from. Here's why it's interesting. But here is also why it is historically untenable. Well, when was I going to do that? Well, I, ha I had discovered previously work with my colleague, um, uh, William Newman, that uh, many of the misinterpretations or reinterpretations of alchemy that make it into something very different than it was in the early modern period, that is the 16th and 17th century, uh, showed up in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. So I had two choices. I could either put this material at the front of the book and say, oh, look, you might have heard this about alchemy, but here's what it's not. Well, I rejected that pretty quickly because who wants to start with a negative argument? I mean, that would be just terrible. I thought that would just turn off readers uh, because I'm telling you what something is not without telling you what it is. So I got rid of that. Then I thought I could do it chronologically, and I'd put it at the end of the book so it's the 18th, 19th, and 20th century up to the present. But then I realized that would be the last word in the book. And so, you know, the things that we read last, we usually remember most, and that didn't seem like a good idea either. So I split the difference, and I put it right in the middle. Um, after the material on the Greek, Arabic, and medieval Latin material, so that there was a good foundation that the reader had already accomplished. Then this sort of interlude, if you will, about, okay, well, you may have heard such and so about alchemy. Where did these ideas come from? Oh, they came about in the 18th and 19th and 20th century with some very, very interesting, fascinating uh, developments, reinterpretations uh, of, of alchemy. So let's talk about those now. And once we're ready to do the history of the early modern again, we jump backwards to the 16th and 17th century, and then that takes the rest of the book to the end. Now, the first chapter looks at um, the origins of 
uh, alchemical work, alchemical ideas in the Greco-Egyptian period, stretching from the 3rd to the 9th century. This period, as you demonstrate in the book, and as you say, set the foundations of alchemy and established many of the features that would go on to characterize it for the rest of its life and, and even uh, up to today. Now, you talk in this chapter about the birth, birth of something called chrysopoeia, or the transmutation into gold. And this is illustrated here and demonstrated, as you talk about this phenomenon, by an image that constitutes plate one. This is an image that reflects your own success in trying to follow some of these ideas or some of these directions and make silver look like gold. This raises some really fascinating issues in terms of the methodology of the history of science, and I'd love to ask you about that in the context of this chapter right now. Can you talk about that um, as a methodological choice, um, and in, perhaps in particular, talk about this particular case and um, this a case in which you um, yourself tried to make silver look like gold, and what um, what does trying to recreate the processes that alchemists may have used do, and what perspective does that give us in the history of science? And can you talk about that as part of your own research methodology? Sure. Um, well, the 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 experiment that you're referring to is something is, is the replication of a recipe that's found in what is called the Leiden papyrus. It is actually the oldest surviving original piece of alchemical text that we have or chemical text, depending on how you want to categorize it. Um, it's written on papyrus. It was probably found in a mummy wrapping, an Egyptian mummy wrapping in the early 19th century. Um, and this this papyrus has a list of workshop recipes for coloring metals, for refining and assaying metals, uh, for doing dyeing of cloth, and so forth. Well, one of them is 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 describes the making of what is called the water of sulfur. Now, there's a problem here in the Greek because the Greek uh, could be translated either the divine water or the water of sulfur. It, it's ambiguous in the, in the Greek because of the way the Greek language is, or the, the vocabulary is. Um, but it's very easy to produce by boiling uh, lime and sulfur in urine or vinegar, and you get a foul-smelling liquid. Uh, the papyrus doesn't actually tell us how to use it, but... Um, like many of their processes, they were thinking of, in the, of, of coloring the metals in terms of dyeing. And, of course, what do you do with cloth? You dip it in a solution to give it a different color. So if you dip silver in this water of sulfur, um, it will gradually turn slightly um, pinkish and then yellow, look like gold, orange, and it'll eventually get quite brown. Uh, this is because of the formation of uh, sulfur compounds, silver sulfides, on the surface of the metal. But in fact, if once you learn to play around with the temperature and the time that's left in the solution, you can really make the silver look an awful like, lot like gold. It's really quite remarkable. Um, well, this brings up two things that you've alluded to in your question. Um, one, um, what does this mean for alchemy? Well, I think one of the things it means is that um, prior to the time people were actually trying to turn silver literally into gold, that is to transform one metal into another, there was already this foundation of artisanal practices 
uh, used in Greco-Roman Egypt for making cheaper materials look more expensive. That is, making silver to look like gold or using different kinds of plants to make dyes that would dye cloth purple like the imperial purple murex dye, which was exorbitantly expensive, and so forth. Um, now, in terms of methodologies, well, you know, one of the problems, of course, any historian has, but I think historians working on alchemy, uh, working on artisanal processes in particular, the problem that we have is a dearth of sources. We never really have enough sources, I think. Uh, where are we going to get information from so that we can understand the past and its actors better? Well, it seemed to me that one of the ways we could do this was through chemistry itself. I mean, if the uh, alchemical workers or the artisanal workers were doing things with silver and gold and arsenic and mercury and all kinds of different substances, presumably, unless the universe has somehow magically changed between then and now, we should be able to carry out the same operations now they did then. And this might, in fact, give us uh, more information, more evidence about how to interpret their writings or to figure out what it was they were doing. The idea that I had in mind really was to have the same sensual experiences. Now, I'm obviously going to interpret them differently because I'm a 20th and 21st century person, but to, if I could get the same kind of sensual perception of the smells and the colors and the textures of things, I thought that might help me understand their writings better. And that actually does also reflect a, a position or an epistemic position of feeling like it is possible to do that. Right, that it is possible to, as you, I think, put it somewhere um, else in the book, to see through the eyes of people who are doing the um, recipe or who are enacting these recipes at the time. So Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and I've found that whenever I get a, a process to work out the way it's described in the original text, suddenly it's as if a door has opened and I see the text and the author at a much deeper level. You know, these little nuances in words that you would have never guessed suddenly make perfect sense. They're obvious because you've seen the same thing they have and you understand what they're talking about at a much deeper level. And is this an approach also that you encourage in graduate students that you might train who are also interested in looking at recipe literature, history of alchemy, or, or these kinds of periods? Absolutely. And it doesn't just have to be in alchemy either. I think for any historian, it's incredibly useful to tr really work hard to try and put yourself in the minds of the people you're studying. Uh, for example, I was teaching a class on, on paleography uh, to read uh, early texts and to read the writing that often looks to us quite illegible. Um, and one of the suggestions I always give my students is get yourself a quill and or, or a reed pen and so a pot of ink and sit there and try and make the letters the way they did. And after you've done that for a couple of days, you'll find the reading is much easier. Mm -hmm. 
fascinating. And and one more question about this because it's so fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about, um, to the extent that you want to, the kind of laboratory uh, situation that you work in? What's your personal laboratory like and what kind of facilities do you have access to in order to um, enact these experiments, which um, we'll talk about also in a later chapter of the book? Well, I have this unusual position here at Johns Hopkins uh, where I have a foot in two different departments, uh, the history of science and technology and the chemistry department. And I actually teach in both departments. Uh, so I have a small laboratory uh, in the chemistry department where I'm able to carry out these operations. One of the things, of course, you need to do alchemical operations is very good ventilation because these alchemists were not working with innocuous substances. I'm constantly doing things with antimony and arsenic and lead and mercury and all kinds of nasty things. So one needs a good fume cupboard. Um, I also have had glass blowers over the years make um, particular types of apparatus for me. Uh, similar to the shapes and styles of retorts, alembics, uh, that sort of thing that the early workers used. And I find that having actually having to use the proper kind of equipment is often quite crucial, as well as using the right kinds of starting materials. Thank you so much. Now, as we move um, further into this chapter and, and into the next chapters in the book, you talk about a theme that's going to be, um, that's going to, again, continue to be central for the rest of the story, the importance of secrecy and the hiding of names in alchemy. And you also have a treatment in this chapter of later Alexandrian and Byzantine authors. Now, as we move into uh, the next chapter, we turn to the Arabic or Islamic period of alchemy, which lasted from the 8th to the 15th century. This period, as you show in the book, translated and augmented the Greek heritage of alchemy with a new set of theoretical and a new set of practical techniques. And translation and translators became really central to this story um, in different ways. Now, one of the many kinds of texts that you talk about in this chapter um, that's just fascinating and also, as you demonstrate, really important to this history is the Jabirian corpus. So can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of that to what's happening in this Arabic or Islamic period of the history of alchemy? Certainly. The, uh, the Jabirian corpus is supposedly contains, or contained at least at one time, um, some 2,000 so-called books, kutub, uh, which probably just means chapters, but it's a very, very, very large amount of, it's a huge amount of writing. Uh, clearly, much more than one person could ever actually have written. Uh, nevertheless, they're all under the name of Jabir ibn Hayyan. Um, whether or not there actually was a Jabir is open to question. Certainly, if there was, he was not the author of all these books. We can date them over a period of about 150 years. So, Unless he was an extremely successful alchemist in extending his life, uh, he would not possibly have been able to do it. The more likely thing is that these works are all the production of a school of or a group of alchemists, um, probably um, in Mesopotamia, uh, probably related to Shiite uh, Muslim uh, groups. Um, who were, who followed one another, uh, building off each other's works. I mean, this is a, this is a very common thing, of course, in early authorship. The early periods had a different idea of authorship than we do today. The people routinely would attribute books to their, they would 
write them under the names, for example, of their own masters, because as a student, you're sort of carrying on the work of the master. And so in a sense, he's the author in one way or another. And this text actually, or this corpus, um, raises some concepts that are going to, again, recur later on in this history, including the mercury-sulfur theory of metals, which doesn't necessarily correspond to the substances today that we call mercury and sulfur. It includes right. um, ways of drawing upon the ideas of Aristotelian qualities and Galenic degrees, and it's also where we can find the development of the term elixir, which um, translated into elixir, um, the, a term that we might be more familiar with now. Now, in this period, there are also critique or critics of the idea of transmutation, and one of the critics is someone who um, might be familiar to, or at least in name, to people interested in the history of science and medicine, and this is Ibn Sina or Avicenna. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the, the criticism of these ideas in this period? Right. Uh, well, uh, we really see in the uh, Islamic period of alchemy uh, a great flowering and diversification of the goals of alchemy, of the techniques, of the materials that are being used. And one of the people who writes uh, quite extensively about alchemy um, is Ibn Sina, or Avicenna. And uh, although he was known perhaps primarily as a physician, a uh, medical physician, uh, he did also write some things on alchemy. Uh, he seems to have, he may have been in favor of alchemy uh, uh, as, as a young man, it's not clear, uh, but certainly in his maturity, he decided that when the alchemists claimed or tried to turn one metal into another, they might succeed in making really good imitations of gold, things that look a lot like gold, but they couldn't actually make real gold. And that's because the, it, it's, 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 the, his argument base is, is largely based on two things, the weakness of human artifice in the face of nature, that human beings just simply cannot perform the kinds of productions that nature can, and second, on human ignorance, that we might know a lot about the structure of gold and its properties, but we're never going to know all of its structure and all of its properties. So whenever we try to make it, there's always going to be something missing. So Avicenna, unlike, unlike, and I should stress this, unlike a lot of alchemical writers, both before him and after him, did sort of diminish the power of, uh, of human artifice. Uh, whereas most alchemists said, well, we can do a pretty good job of imitating nature. And there are actually two issues um, that are raised um, by this case that lead us into what's going to be happening um, in the next chapter of the book. First, the issue over the, I think, uh, recurring and enduring controversies over the relative values of naturally and artificially produced substances. And this issue actually, as you show, um, is, is even uh, discussed today. I mean, that this is uh, an issue that sure. is still with us and also worries about forging and counterfeiting and the imitation of substances in a broader social, political, and economic context. Now, these are both also trenchant issues in the next period of the history of alchemy that you write about, and this is the High Middle Ages from the 12th to the 15th century. This is when alchemy arrives in medieval Europe, and it really does so, as you show here, as an Arabic science. 
Now, among the many fascinating things about this period are the new connections that we see developing between alchemy and other endeavors, other realms of thought or practice. One of those sets of connections that you talk about here is between alchemy and Christianity. Can you talk about that as it develops um, in this part of the story? Right. Yeah, there are probably two uh, triggers for this, this uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, alliance between Christian theology and alchemy. The first is um, when alchemy got established in the Latin Middle Ages, um, it ran into a bit of controversy. Now, we don't have really good sources to tell us what this controversy was, uh, what what all the what all the background to this controversy was. But the question was basically. Can alchemists really do what they're claiming to be able to do? Oh, the Middle Ages had Avicenna's denial, uh, and people lined up on one side or the other, either agreeing with Avicenna or disagreeing with him. Um, but we also know that this, these controversies uh, entered really the highest circles of power in the Middle Ages, namely the papal court. And there may, there is claimed to have been, may or may not have happened, a debate in the early 14th century uh, between the promoters of alchemy and its deniers. Well, apparently, um, those who promoted it or defended it must not have done a very good job because the result was that Pope John XXII um, in the 13 teens issued a decretal um, forbidding the transmutation of base metals into gold and silver. Now, the basic reason he was concerned was over counterfeiting. That what if the gold that's being produced is false? Well, there are two problems. One, you're passing off what just looks like gold as real gold, and so this is a kind of fraud. Second of all, it debases the currency, because what if that gold goes into the, the mint and gets mixed with the gold supply, well, you've just contaminated the entire gold supply. And so the foundations of economies for medieval Europe would be corrupted. Right? So there's a, a great deal of concern about this sort of thing. Um, in, in light of the this kind of controversy, one of the two responses, well, there are two responses, one, alchemy suddenly starts becoming more secretive because now it's got a lot of critics. When alchemy first showed up in the Middle Ages in Europe, it was really quite clear. It was adopted into the scholastic university disputational culture, um, and there was not a great deal of secrecy. Still some, because that's part of its tradition, but not a great deal. However, starting in the 14th century, we see a huge increase in the amount of secrecy. Um, Things being written under the names of safely dead and safely authoritative figures, like alchemical works attributed to St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, and other folks. Um, the other thing besides the secrecy was adjoining to Christianity that you just mentioned. And perhaps one of the reasons for this is by linking alchemy to Christianity, it in a sense elevates the alchemical art, which could be criticized, one, for being not entirely honest, 
or being criticized also for being too too manual, too uh, dirty, in fact, just the way chemistry still is, in a sense. Um, so uh, linking it to Christianity certainly gave it a bit more cachet, uh, uh, elevated its status as perhaps a divine art, a divine creative art. Um, and, and this is actually, this um, connection with Christianity is one of several that several kinds of connections that you show here. The other one that stands out immediately to me is one that we'll talk about a little bit later when we talk about early modern um, contexts of alchemy, and that's an, a new connection with medicine that alchemy develops in this context as well. There's also a really interesting discussion of the emblematic nature of images of alchemy, in this period, which again, we'll, we'll come back to um, the, the nature of images of alchemy and where that fits into the story in just a, a few minutes. Now we move from here, though, before we get to the early modern context, um, there is a chapter right in the middle of the book, as you mentioned before, that jumps ahead to look at the period from 18th century to the present day. Now this is an ongoing period that's still with us, that's characterized by reinterpretations and revivals of earlier alchemical traditions, and also um, is Pretty much the place that we see the root of many of the widespread misconceptions of pre-18th century alchemy. Now, by the mid-18th century, as you show here, transmutational alchemy is increasingly discredited, and this is actually um, really important for shaping not just the ways of thinking about alchemy and chemistry as two different kinds of things, but also shaping a historiographical move to talk about chemistry rather than alchemy or chemistry. So can you talk about these issues for a little bit as, as they're important to you in the context of the book? Right. I think that, well, uh, some readers may be sort of surprised by my use of the word chemistry that's spelled C-H-Y, um, and the reason I did that, well, it's a, it's a term that, again, my colleague Bill Newman and I uh, decided to start using in order to get away from these sort of immediate preconceptions that are uh, uh, provoked when one hears the word alchemy and when one hears the word chemistry. I think living as we do uh, in the late 21st, uh, in the early 21st century, uh, as inheritors of 18th century, 19th century, 20th century rhetoric, uh, we tend to hear alchemy as being something sort of strange and magical and outdated and old-fashioned and maybe fraudulent, whereas chemistry is this modern science that produces all kinds of useful things for us. Uh, so the non-scientific versus the scientific, the fraudulent versus the authentic. Well, in the 17th century, the words alchemy and chemistry were used largely interchangeably. And so that division between the two words is actually a product of the ostracism of alchemy from the roster of respectable uh, investigations, of respectable subjects. So therefore, I use the word chemistry um, in order to sort of shock the reader into remembering that, oh, wait a minute, I can't use my modern connotations of those two words. It's this it's whole ball of wax of the transformate, the study and the transformation and the utilization of material substances would have been called alchemy or chemistry in the early modern period. So we'll just call it chemistry with a Y. Now, in this part of the story as well, we see the emergence of 
alchemy in the 18th and the 19th century being related to a larger category of occult sciences. Can you talk about that and the importance of that to this story? Right. Well, you know, this is a this is a very interesting development that occurs in the 18th century, and scholars are still studying exactly how and why and where and by whom it happened. That is, uh, the roster of respectable academic subjects uh, was transformed then, so that, for example, things that were very important uh, scholarly traditions like astrology. Uh, get removed from what is respectable uh, for uh, natural philosophers to be doing. Uh, the same thing happens with transmutational alchemy. What happens in, in, in alchemy or in chemistry, I should say, is that things related to the philosopher's stone, the agent of metallic transmutation, trying to affect transmutation, uh, gets called alchemy in the early 18th century. Uh, and everything else that would have been alchemy or chemistry uh, gets called chemistry, sort of the, the stuff that we're used to now is chemistry. Um, it's a complex issue, um, and part of the work I'm doing now is trying to uh, tease out more closely, uh, more precisely exactly how this happens in alchemy, but it needs to happen in all sorts of other disciplines as well, uh, this, this change into the 18th century. It's, it's still um, a topic for inquiry. Now, you mentioned uh, very briefly, and I just want to ask you about this very briefly, um, as we've mentioned uh, already that this period saw the emergence of some misconceptions. What are one or two of the most widespread misconceptions about alchemy that you're trying to um, help readers revise through your treatment in this chapter? Well, probably the major one is that alchemy and chemistry are somehow completely different things historically. Uh, in the 19th century... And the early 20th century, a couple of schools of interpretation uh, sprang up uh, that said that alchemy didn't really, except incidentally, deal with the transformation of material substances. And so it was only distantly related to chemistry, if at all. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it will, some argued that it was a kind of self-transformation, a self-purification, a, a psychic uh, transmutation of the self. Uh, this is a this is a, an idea that starts really in the 19th century. Um, it's an extraordinarily interesting uh, transformation in the context of the Victorian occult revival, and so worthy of study by all means. Uh, but the problem comes when we try and take those kind of redefinitions and read them backwards onto the alchemy of the 17th century and earlier, where they don't really fit. This is certainly what Victorian occultists tried to do. They tried to say that alchemy has been the same since time immemorial, um, and that it was always a psychic practice, for example. But you know, historically, that's just not tenable. Thank you. Now, from this context, we then go back into the early modern context, where alchemy achieved its golden age, as you, sh as you show, in Europe, 
from the 16th through the 18th century. Now, in this period, alchemical ideas and practices really expanded their reach into a much wider array of thinkers and practitioners. And we also have many more sources from this time to understand the history of alchemy than for any pre, uh, prior period that we've talked about. Now, chapter five gives an overview of early modern alchemical theory and practice and focuses on two central goals, metallic transmutation and pharmaceutical medicine. In the context of your discussion of metallic transmutation, you give an example of the work of George Starkey. Because he also comes up later in the book in the context of his philosophical tree, could you talk a little bit about George Starkey, the importance of his work in this context, and also your experience in um, reproducing here a philosophical tree? Well, Starkey is a very interesting character, has an interesting life story, uh, meets a lot of interesting people, and I think more in, in, in more germane to the book itself is that he is sort of a little microcosm of the diversity within alchemy. That is, you could call yourself an alchemist or a chemist and be involved with the transmutation of metals, the making of pharmaceuticals, as you've just said, the making of cosmetics, of paints and dyes and pigments. Uh, commercial applications, all kinds of things. And Starkey was involved in most of them at one time or another. Um, Starkey was born in Bermuda in 1628. Um, after he was orphaned by the death of his father, his uncle sent him to a young uh, new institution in Massachusetts called Harvard College, where he got a degree graduating in 1646. Um, and he started, even apparently as an undergraduate, uh, having an interest in the new kinds of chemical medicines and in, the tra and in transmutational experiments as well. Uh, he eventually, in 1650, uh, got on a boat and went to London. We're not exactly sure why he left to go to London, but reading between the lines of things he says later, uh, he just found it too difficult to do uh, his experiments in the comparatively rather difficult uh, uh, conditions of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, once he was in London, he was introduced to a wide circle of people, including the famous Robert Boyle. And there is some pretty good evidence that he actually uh, acted as a kind of tutor to Boyle, teaching him uh, the basics of chemical practice and chemical ideas. Um, and Starkey also became more famous under his pseudonym, Irenaeus Philalethes, or the Peaceful Lover of Truth. Uh, he claimed, Starkey claimed to have met an alchemical adept, that is one who possesses the Philosopher's Stone and is able to transmute base metals into gold, uh, that he met this adept by the name of Philalethes in America, and that some of Philalethes' manuscripts had been entrusted to him. Uh, the reality, of course, is that Starkey himself had written them, and these were circulated privately, partly during, uh, during Starkey's lifetime, to a select circle of friends. After, after Starkey's death, they were actually published, uh, and so Starkey has come down to us as a sort of bifurcated figure. Um, Starkey, who wrote pamphlets about medical... Uh, issues under his own name, uh, and then this fabulous, magnificently successful adept Irenaeus Philalethes. Now, later in the book, you actually um, 
in your discussion in chapter six of what alchemists were perhaps actually doing in their laboratories, you invoke Starkey again in his creation of, um, or his um, connection to something called a philosophical tree. And this is a particularly interesting moment um, in the book for the reader. And so can you talk a little bit about that and your experience with that? Sure. It was, it was actually one of the more remarkable experiences I've ever had in my study of, of alchemy. Um, we're extremely fortunate in that a number of the laboratory notebooks that Starkey kept have survived to this day. There are some in the, in the Royal Society of London and the British Library and elsewhere. Um, and using these and some letters that he wrote to his friend and probably patron, Boyle, uh, I tried to follow a recipe that Starkey regarded extremely highly that he would not give to anyone. He did give it to Boyle because Boyle was a good friend. Boyle himself liked this recipe so much, thought it was so likely to be the uh, entrance to making the Philosopher's Stone that he experimented with it for 40 years. Anyway, I wanted to see what what it was they were actually doing. It calls for the production of something called the Mercury of the Philosophers, or an animated Mercury. Uh, And it's a laborious process. It takes over a month to finish of grinding Mercury with various substances and distilling it repeatedly. It's very, very repetitious and very labor-intensive. And at the end of it, I at least was rather disappointed to find that what I got out at the end looked very much like what um, I started with a month earlier. However, you know, I I had done enough alchemical experiments not to let appearances be too deceiving. And so I carried on the experiment. The next step was to mix it with gold, seal it up in what's called a philosophical egg, which is an oval flask with a long neck and heat it. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that they didn't have thermometers at the time, so it's a little bit difficult to figure out what the right temperature is supposed to be. So after fiddling around with temperature for mm, probably a good month, it took me to find the right temperature. You know, you, you get this uh, mixture of gold and this philosophical mercury, which is a gray semi-liquid mass. It just sits at the bottom of the um, um, flask and doesn't look particularly interesting. But when the right temperature was hit, I, I came in one morning to my lab and uh, sort of moved the sand away from the flask because you have to bury it in sand, which is being heated to keep it at the temperature. And to my utter astonishment, inside the flask was no longer this little amorphous lump of gray material, but a glittering silver tree that filled the entire oval of the flask. Um, I momentarily thought I had lost my mind. <laughs> and I sat down at my desk and said, no, that couldn't possibly be what I just saw. Took a couple of deep breaths, went back, looked at it again, and sure enough, that is exactly what had happened. And this means that when Starkey and several other alchemists, by the way, when they write rather cryptically, um, I have made gold germinate and grow, they're actually speaking literally. Because that's exactly what it looks like, that a tree has grown out of this seed of gold. 
It's such a striking um, case. It's such a striking image. And there are also, um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to see the book, there are also images of this tree um, that are included in the plate. So I um, direct listeners to definitely um, make sure to pay attention to that part when you do, and I hope you do, um, get your own copy of the book. Now, in addition to metallic transmutation, um, there's another central goal that you talk about um, in this later part of the book, and that is pharmaceutical medicine. And I won't ask you to talk too much about that, but I just wanted to flag that for listeners, that there's a really extended discussion of the importance of the connection between what these practitioners are doing and, um, and the larger field of the history of medicine, in particular touching on the importance of Paracelsus, of his ideas of the homunculus, and of the idea of palingenesis, which is the practice of trying to return dead materials to some sort of life. So that's a really interesting part of this chapter as well. Now, as we move into the last part of the book, um, we move into a discussion of uh, these the experimental processes of the alchemists, and you've already talked a little bit about that. You also, though, in this last part of the book, talk about the importance of the imagery that accompanies many of the texts that you talk about in the book, the imagery and the kind of coded language that is um, represented in these images. And um, this is actually really interesting because you talk here about the importance of deciphering some of that imagery and understanding it in its historical context in order to actually get to the point where you can um, try to reproduce some of these uh, experiments and recipes yourself. So can you talk a little bit, um, as we move to the, the end of our conversation, about that imagery, about your approach to that imagery and its importance um, for the, in the context of this larger story we're talking about? Well, alchemical imagery is, is particularly rich in beautiful woodcuts uh, and engravings of very often very bizarre uh, uh, scenes. Um, what does it really all mean? Well, the argument is, is that it was intended to preserve secrecy. Well, fine. But if you really want to preserve secrecy, you don't publish books on the subject and you don't publish images. So it must be more than secrecy. And my argument is that it's intended both to reveal and conceal. That is, it's a kind of uh, restricted communication where people who are clever enough or enough in the know are able to decipher the metaphorical, allegorical images and figure out what the author is really trying to communicate. Whereas for people who are, would be considered unworthy for whatever reason, would just look at it and see a pretty picture or a bizarre picture and not go any further with it. Uh, but I think one of the things we really need to do is take this imagery and put it back in the context, not only of the text that it exists within, because very often alchemical images have been uh, removed from their textual context, and so they really don't have any more meaning. Put it back with the text, but put it also with the practice. Because alchemy, of anything, it's always about practice. It's about mind and hand. It's about doing things. So... Uh, trying to interpret the imagery is a key part of figuring out what it was they were doing, how they were doing it, and how they were thinking about it. Thank you, Larry. Now, as we look, as we again move to the final part of our conversation, there is a, a seventh chapter in the book that explores the diffusion of alchemical language and ideas into a wider cultural world of early modernity. And this chapter looks at a number of really interesting uh, 
reflections and ramifications of alchemical ideas, history, and language in many forms of the arts in this period, from painting to plays, poetry, religious literature, um, and other kinds of fictional um, and essay critiques. In the interest of time, I would love to ask you about all of these. They're <laughs> fascinating and beautiful. Is there any example in this chapter in particular that you feel especially moved by or um, that particularly interests you that you want to mention for listeners? Well, there are just two things I'd like to mention, actually. One is that we often assume that the, uh, the alchemist was some kind of secretive person in a dark laboratory that nobody else knew about. But in fact, alchemy and the alchemist as a figure was very, very well known in early modern Europe and a crucial part of the culture. Painters depicted it, poets talked about them. They were not unknown characters. They were crucial parts of early modern European culture. I think that the second thing that I'm particularly interested in is towards the end of that chapter where I'm talking about uh, sort of early modern worldviews. How do we really want to understand our early modern predecessors? Well, we have to understand how they looked at the world. And I think although there is probably no one alchemical way of looking at the world, alchemy does give us a nice uh, entree into that into that world vision. So that's what I'm trying to talk about there. How can we use alchemy to find out something about much much broader swath of early modern uh, culture about understanding the world in, in in connected terms? That's great, and you do have I think a really rich discussion in this last chapter uh, before the epilogue of the importance of thinking in terms of an interlinked cosmos to a lot of the people who are writing and practicing um, in this period, which is really helpful um, and and very illuminating, I think, for doing exactly the kinds of things that you just mentioned. Well, thanks. I I think that is really crucial. It, it again, trades on this issue of alchemy in the arts, but alchemy with Christianity, with philosophy, and so forth. Exactly. Well, Larry, thank you so much. There's so much in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. As I've mentioned, it's a really rich book. There are not only um, ideas, but also lots of examples of particular people, figures, texts, and really the intricacies of the development of um, ideas in the history of chemistry, alchemy, chemistry, that you uh, present for us really, really beautifully in the context of these chapters. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about in this hour, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who may not yet have had an opportunity to buy the book, to read the book? Well, I, I think the only thing I can say is the, is to sort of return to what I said at the beginning, that this is a sort of interim report. I, there's no way at this point we can uh, uncover all the secrets of alchemy. It's just too rich and too important a field. And so hopefully, maybe in another hmm, 15 years, there'll be a second edition with a, a new interim report. But I, I, I am certainly amazed. One of the things perhaps that I'm most amazed by um, is the growth of interest in alchemy. When I started doing this in the 80s, people used to look at me a little bit funny and worry about my sanity. Uh, and nowadays, there are just conferences and other other uh, um, scholars working on alchemy all over the world. And that's just a fantastic thing. That's right. So now that the book is out, and again, congratulations on the book, what's Thank next you. for you? What project is currently inspiring you? 
Well, I'm going in two directions. I, I actually found that I was very interested in more of the changes that happened in alchemy in the 19th century, particularly rapprochement between alchemy and chemistry, where they try and come back together in the 19th century. So I am interested in that. Uh, but uh, probably the major topic right now is I'm looking at the French Academy of Sciences uh, around the year 1700, from, say, about 1680 to 1720, and looking at the transformations of chemistry at the academy in a sort of science in the state context, in a professionalizing context of the new theories, the new materials that are being brought into Europe from all over the world, and how that reconfigures chemistry. The chemistry from 1680 to 1720 is a really very different animal at the two ends of that uh, time period. So I'm trying to work out what's going on. On there, And, of course, the French Academy is a crucial place to ask this question because, well, later in the 18th century, that's where Lavoisier would be. Well, best of luck with that work, and thank you again for talking with me. It's really been a pleasure. And pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.